from the book of Joshua, chapter 3. I want to use this whole chapter, there's 17 verses, and um, in the early service I, I kind of got into it and I was reading the whole thing and I uh, decided that I would not read the entire chapter, but I want you to hold it there because we're going to look at some, some uh, truths that are in it. It was uh, it's kind of a toss-up. Do you read this? And, and everybody gets to the end of it and they don't remember what was in it, or do we go through it later? So I'm going to try the second part since the first one didn't work in the early service. There is a truth that we have uh, spoken here, uh, taught here, that's become pretty redundant. I hope it, I hope it is redundant. I hope it's ingrained in your memory is that you get the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament and you get the pictures of those principles in the Old Testament. And if you want, to, if you want the Old Testament to come alive, you begin to look in the Old Testament at, with regard to that truth that the events and the people and pieces of furniture that are found in the Old Testament have some kind of illustration or illustration of some New Testament principle. It's called um, typology. So that if you're looking from an Old Testament perspective, you'll know that this, these events in the Old Testament to some degree point to some event or some person that is coming in the New Testament. And if you live in the New Testament era like we do, then you look back on the Old Testament, you look back on these events and see them illustrated and pictured in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant is one of those, is an example of that. Now the Ark of the Covenant was this box that the Israelites carried around with them. Inside were certain pieces of Old Testament history and it was covered with a lid called the mercy seat. And when the Old Testament talks about God dwelling in, in the middle of the cherubim, on the top of this mercy seat engraved with gold were the cherubim and God was symbolically dwelling on this mercy seat. It was the temporary dwelling place of God and so they carried around with them this Ark of the Covenant and it was in the holiest place in the tabernacle because it symbolized where God dwelled, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ who was the abode of God. In Him, the Bible said, dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead bodily so that the temporary dwelling place of God was in Jesus Christ, who was the embodiment of God, the enfleshed God, so that what the, old, what the Ark of the Covenant was to the Israelites in the Old Testament, Jesus is to us. And if you can look back sometime, from time to time, upon the Ark of the Covenant and understand that that is a foreshadowing of uh, a picture, a typology of Jesus who is coming, and you look back on that as an illustration of what Jesus was and what He did, it comes alive. 
Now, the theme of chapter 3 is the Ark of the Covenant. It's mentioned ten times in the third chapter. But the real significance of the Ark of the Covenant was its position in chapter 3. Now, the Israelites had the Ark of the Covenant with them. They carried the Ark with them. God was with them as they drifted and wandered around in the wilderness. But now as they come to enter the land of promise, the land of victory, the land that flows with milk and honey, this Ark of the Covenant assumes another position, a new position. And the key is not in the possession of the Ark. The key is in the position of the Ark. What the Ark was to the Old Testament, Jesus is to us. Now every believer this morning possesses Jesus Christ. He is, in, he is in you. He indwells you. And wherever you go, He goes because He indwells you. But the difference between spiritual wealth and spiritual victory and defeat, between spiritual wealth and poverty, is the position that Jesus Christ has in your life. Now some of us, to some of us, Jesus is kind of along for the ride, like a hitchhiker. You know, you pick up a hitchhiker and he goes and sits down on the passenger side or he sits in the back seat. He's just kind of along for the ride, but he has no authority. He is not in that position. Some of us have received Jesus Christ and we have allowed him to just kind of go along for the ride, but he's not in the position of authority and leadership. The question this morning is not do you possess Jesus Christ as a believer. Every believer possesses Him. The question is, the essential question is, what position does Jesus Christ have in your life? Is He in the position of authority and leadership? And that's the key to spiritual victory. So I want to talk this morning about the position of Jesus Christ and following Him, following him and what it means to follow Jesus. What is the result of that? What is the product of that? Number one, when Jesus is in the position of leadership and authority, He leads us. It gives direction over unchartered paths. Now I want you to look at verse 4 of chapter 3. However, He said... There shall be a distance between you and it, a distance of about 2,000 cubits, the Ark of the Covenant. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. This is uncharted territory. This is an uncharted path. Now when the Holy Spirit or when Jesus leads us over uncharted paths, I want to say two things. Number one, you better be sure you keep your eyes on the ark. You better be sure you keep your eye on Jesus. Can you imagine, have you ever tried to imagine how these people felt? I mean, they'd come out of Egypt and they'd been wandering around in the wilderness just going in circles. And Moses was leading them. No wonder they from time to time wished they could go back to Egypt because at least there was some security there about today is going to be much like the day before, but they didn't know what this day was going to be like because they were on uncharted paths, just drifting around in the wilderness. And then Moses dies, and they're about to go into the land of the giants with an untried, unproven leader. Have you ever thought how they must have felt? 
And when they begin to take this new step, this was the key. You just keep your eyes on the ark. Now, if you live to 1 o'clock this morning, uh, this afternoon, this morning too, but this afternoon, if you live to 1 o'clock, if you make it out of this service and you live to 1 o'clock, you're going to, you're going to go on uncharted paths. You've never lived this hour before. And you're going to experience in the next hour something that has never been experienced before. You better keep your eyes on somebody who knows where we're going and somebody who understands what lies out ahead of us. It doesn't matter who leads. I hate to say that. I mean, I'm supposed to be your leader. It doesn't matter who leads you. What matters is who's leading the leader. That's the key. I heard Ron Allen, the president of the Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland, give his testimony. And I, I, I've noticed this, and he made this, he made this point, and I've noticed it true too, that just about the time you get life just fixed out just like you want it, you get it, you get it arranged neatly in little compartments, little rib, tie a little ribbon around it, and everything's going just like you want it to, all hell breaks loose, and everything comes unraveled. You ever notice that? And Ron Allen said that he, he got this job as president of the conservative seminary and he said everything was going great. He bought some property out east of Portland. If you've ever been there, it's out toward Mount Hood, most beautiful place in the world. He said he had some acreage and had some animals, had three children. He said we had a two-year-old daughter who was the light of our life. She was just Miss Vivacious. She was, at one, she was the life of the house. He said she'd get sick and she'd have high fever and the next day she'd be okay and then she'd get sick again. And just, just like a roller coaster. Uh, Ron's wife was a nurse and so she kind of took care of her and he said she began to be concerned about their little girl. One day she broke out in little blisters all over her body and so she took her to the teaching hospital in Portland to get her checked out, find out what's wrong. He said he was in his office and the phone rang and he said his wife, he could tell she was... She was panicking, panic-stricken. She said, Ron, they want to meet with us this afternoon for a meeting, and I think the news is bad. So he said he left his office, and they went into this room where all this battery of physicians and nurses were. Everybody was somber and serious. And he said they broke the news. His two-year-old daughter had leukemia, an aggressive, brutal kind of leukemia that was a killer. And he said, everybody in that room, even the doctors who knew my wife, we were all sobbing. And he said, that the doctor told us that we're going to try our best. We're going to give her the best care and the best medication, but you need to get ready for her dying. And he said, my wife stayed in the hospital with our little girl that night, and I went home to take care of our other kids. And out east of Portland, he said, I pulled over at the side of the road, and I was weeping uncontrollably. And he said, I wanted to ask the question, why? But he said, that wasn't, just, that wasn't right for me to ask that question because when you ask God why, you assume there's some easy pat answer. And I know there's not. There are not easy pat answers to life's mysteries. And he said, I was afraid if I asked why, I didn't get an easy answer. I'd be bitter and angry at God. He said, what I felt like asking was this, what now? He said, pulled over the side of the road, weeping uncontrollably. I began to ask, what now, Lord? What's out before us now? Where do we go from here? 
And he said, I heard this little still, small voice in my spirit say, just keep your eye on me. I want you to dust off that old book of Nahum that you haven't read in a long time and read verse 3 of chapter 1. The way of the Lord is in the whirlwind and in the storm. Just keep your eye on me. And so God told Abraham, get up and get out of this land to the land that I will show you. Didn't give him a map. You know why? Because his eye would have been on the map. Didn't tell him what it was like, what it would be like when he got there. You know why? Because his eye would have been on the countryside. He just wanted Abraham to do what he wants us to do. Just keep our eye on him. And so Jehoshaphat went into battle and the Amalekites were coming against him and Jehoshaphat prays this marvelous prayer. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We have no might and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so Simon Peter was in that little boat and Jesus came walking on the water and Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And Jesus said, come. And he stepped out on the water. Long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he walked on the water, took his eyes on, off Jesus, put, it on the, put them on the storms on the waves and began to perish. You may not know much about what the next hour holds, but if you know enough to keep your eyes on Jesus, you know enough. Just keep your eye on the ark. Second, just go after it. Now what he says in this passage is, now they're going to take the ark, the priests are going to take the ark, and they're headed for the water, they're headed for the Jordan. What are you supposed to do? Go after it. You're talking about, I'm talking about raw obedience here. I'm going to tell you this morning that God's power is manifested when we act upon our faith. Because God never guides a stationary object. You know what a Christian is? A Christian is not some Gnostic that has this supernatural knowledge. A Christian is a person who just obeys what he already knows. What do you do when you don't feel like praying? You pray. And what do you do when you don't feel like following? You follow. And how do you live this Christian life when you come on these uncharted paths? You just do what you know to do. That's what you do. It's not a matter of emotion. It's interesting to me that that the only realm of life where we operate in the realm of emotion is in the spiritual life. You don't operate that way in your business, your work, your employment. If your boss, you calls your boss tomorrow and said, Mr. Boss, I'm not coming in today. He says, well, why? You feel bad? He says, no, I just don't feel like it. See how long that works out. You, you call your spouse today and say, honey, I'm not going to be home today. Not coming home tonight. Why? Well, I just don't feel married. You know what she's going to say? I'm going to see you in about 30 minutes. And on your way home, honey, stop by and get some bread and milk. And that's what you're going to do. I mean, it's, there's no excuse. I mean, uh, I don't feel like it. It's not an excuse. Just do it. It's, it's, not, 
it's not a matter of does it make sense. Let me ask you something. Does it make sense to step out into the Jordan when it's at flood stage? I mean, out of its banks? That would make a bit of sense. It's not a matter of making sense. Some of you got Fulgham's book. It's, uh, it says, I don't know, it was on fire when I lay down on it. You know where that came from? You've, you've read that book. Barbara's read it. This, this, this news report came out that somebody saw billows of smoke coming out of this house and the fire trucks came and went rushing in. There was this guy on this bed. It was on fire. Mattress on fire. Sheets on fire. They put out the mattress, put out the fire, put the sheets out and asked the guy what caused the fire. He said, I don't know. It's on fire when I lay down on it. <laughs> uh, you, you tell me what makes <laughs> what, what was that all about? I mean, what makes sense about that? I don't understand why we do what we do. I don't understand why God does what He does. I don't have to understand it. I just have to be obedient. You remember reading, you remember memorizing the charge of a light brigade? Cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them, volleyed and thundered. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. There's not to reason why. There's not to make reply. There's but to do and die. I mean, when God says, follow me, it's not a matter of does it make sense or not. And when Hurricane Hazel was battering the East Coast in a little Coast Guard station called Camp May, Cape May, a group of Coast Guard men were sound asleep until in the middle of the night their commander came bursting into the barracks and said, all right, men, it's time to go to sea. And the hurricane was ripping it out out there. One of the guys who was just initiated into Coast Guard life looked out at the danger of that and said, sir, if we go to sea, we may not come back. He said, we don't have to come back. We have only to go. What happens when God leads you on uncharted paths? Well, a sweet girl came up to me this morning and said, Last night, I committed my life to missions. Isn't that great? She's over at the missions conference. She said, For a long time, I've been dealing with the call of God to be a missionary, to be for, for Christian vocational mission service. And she said, Quote, Something that I said and you said, I don't know where this is going to lead me, and I am frankly scared, but I know it's what God wants me to do. Where is God going to lead you after this service? Doesn't matter where He leads you, just keep your eye on Him and go for it. That's the uncharted path. Second, following Jesus gives delivery over unconquerable problems. And when you read this, and I hope you will, you'll find that he brought them to the, to the Jordan at flood stage. And he had them sit there, camp there for three days. And while they were camped at the, at the edge of the Jordan on, at flood stage, nobody's making a bridge, nobody's building a boat. They're just sitting there looking at the river. Now why do you suppose God brought them to the edge of the Jordan at flood stage and had them sit there and look at it? Because He wanted them to see that what they faced in life was beyond their resources, the resources within themselves. He wanted them to see, watch this, 
that they were dealing with an unconquerable problem. Following Jesus means delivery from unconquerable problems. Let me say three things quickly, just in general, about problems. Number one is, is that problems are a natural process of life. It rains on the just and the unjust. Second, there is no such thing as a problem-free plateau. Some, our rationale is, is if I have enough faith, I'll get to a place where I'll never have any problems in life. Now, don't believe it. There, you'll never get to a place where there are no problems. Number three, problems do not necessarily mean that God is displeased with you or that you have sinned. Some people say, well, I must have done something terribly wrong because I have all these problems, these trials in life. doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that everybody in life will encounter unconquerable problems. No exemptions. Let me tell you the difference when you encounter an unconquerable problem. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Now, I need you to help me this morning. I'm, I'm, it's hot up here, and I'm, and I'm hot and sweating. I need you to help me. I need you to talk back to me, and that'll help me a little bit, get, get over this hump. Um, what did these people find in the midst of the Jordan? What did they find? You tell me. Oh, dry ground. Who said ark? Who said that? Oh, okay, good. Two, said ark. You get it. Now, see me after church, and I'll give you that free, free hot dog that you get. When we went in. They found the ark. When they got out into the river, they found the ark. I mean, they did find dry ground. That's, that's, that's true, and I'm not trying to put you down. I'm just telling you we're wrong. I mean, no, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. What they found in the midst of the Jordan, what, what you find, are you, are you following this, this goofy idea? When you, what you find in the middle of the Jordan, if the ark is to us, is to Israel, if the ark is, if Jesus is to us, what the ark was to Israel, what you find in the middle of the Jordan is Jesus. Now listen to me carefully. I think I'd rather, I hope I don't have to come to this um, experientially, but let me tell you what I believe is best. I believe it's best to drown in the river with Jesus than to live on the, on the bank without Him. And if it means that I'm going to have to live my life in the midst of the, of the flood in order to experience Jesus, then bring on the flood. That's, what's called, that's what brokenness is. And what you discover in the middle of the river is Jesus. And I want to tell you something. Jesus is, will never be more real to you than He is in the middle of the problem. He's more real to you there than he'll ever be. And so the Hebrew children got into that furnace, heated seven times hot, and in the fire they discovered who was likened to the, the fourth person who was likened to the Son of Man. You'll never find Jesus more real than in the flooding Jordan. Second, 
He leads us through these unconquerable problems. Look at verse 10 for, for this reason. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Hittites and the Canaanites and all the other ites. You know what he's saying? He's saying one of the blessings and the joys of being led through an unconquerable problem is that you will discover, you will know from experience that there's no such thing as an unconquerable problem. When he leads you through this situation that seems unconquerable, you gain the experience, you get some history, you understand that whatever is out before you, you're sufficient to deal with. You've already been through the toughest part. You know what I'm saying? This is yes. You know what I'm saying? When he leads you through the fire and the river, you know there's not an ike in the world that can hurt you. One last thought, please. Not only does following Jesus give direction over uncharted paths and delivery over unconquerable problems, following Jesus is an open door to unclaimed possessions. An open door to unclaimed possessions. Now, talk to me again. See if you can get it right. Talk to me. What led these people? How did they get through the Jordan? It, remember now, I'll give you a hint. The theme of chapter 3 is the ark. Now, little hint. What, how did they get delivery? How did they get through this river? It, what, what got them through the river? What? The ark. You got it. The ark. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that they had the ark all along. Are you listening? They had the ark all along. Now, they started following it. You have Jesus. You've had him all along. When you gave your heart to Jesus Christ and you invited Him to come and live in your life, He came all that He is to indwell you. You've had, listen to me, you've had all along everything you have ever needed for everything that's come along. You just haven't been following. Somebody said, he had a dream when he got to heaven. He, he dreamed that he saw all these packages over there, beautiful packages wrapped with his name on them. And, and he asked somebody who was leading him around to heaven, St. Peter or whoever does it, he said, what, what are all those presents, all those gifts? And, and, and heaven's guide said, they're, they're, all those, they're all those possessions you never claimed in this life. Some of you are going to die in the wilderness. And when you get to heaven, you're going to discover to your chagrin, to your dismay, that you've had everything in this life that was necessary for everything you encountered. You just weren't following Him. It's not a matter of having Jesus and graduating to something better. It's a matter of possessing the possession. It's a matter of putting the possession in the position He, 
He must be. And when we have Him in the position of authority, you have possessions you've never possessed. You say, well, what does it mean? You throw, away, you throw around all those platitudes and words about following Jesus. What does that mean? Let me show you something. Let me ask you four questions. What's the most important thing to you? What's the most important to you? What drives your thoughts and your actions? What makes you feel value, of value and significance and importance? Where is your comfort zone? If you can answer those questions with Jesus' name, you know you're following Him. Is He the most important to you? Does He give you significance and value and feelings of, of, of significance? Is following Him your comfort zone? Is that where you long to be and are happy to be? Let me ask you one other question. How do you think Mother Teresa gets out of bed in the morning? This old lady must be 180 years old. She looks that old. She is old. She is older than I am. And, and this lady, uh, she won't die. How do you expect her to get out? How do you think she gets out of bed in the morning? You think she gets out of bed in the morning saying, Oh, another, uh, oh no, another dismal, lousy day in the dirty streets of Calcutta. I don't think so. I think she gets out of bed in the morning and says, I wonder where Jesus is going to be today. I think she crawls out of bed, puts on her little, you know, dress or whatever, you know, this cheap clothes that she... I think she gets out of bed, dresses, and says, I wonder where Jesus is going to take me today. That's pretty exciting. And let me tell you something. Hear me now. Whatever she encounters in the streets of Calcutta, she knows she is sufficient. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you'll lead us today to the victory of life, to the joy of life. Help us to go for it in faith. For I pray in Jesus' name. You know what, man? Look here. Being a Christian means I'm going to get up and follow Jesus. I'm going to start following Jesus. There's a point of time where you say, I'm going to leave the old and I'm going to begin to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat this morning come down this aisle and say I'm going to begin to follow Jesus. He's got my life. I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to follow him. Perhaps he may lead you to join put your life in this church. I'm going to do it. That's where I feel leadership. A man came this morning and joined this church who was a deacon in another denomination. You talk about courage. He's going to be baptized. To, to, to take that step meant that he was absolutely certain that this is where God was leading him to go, to be, and to do. Maybe that's what you need to say. Or maybe you need to come this morning to say, I, my eyes have not been on Jesus. They've been on the storms 
on the problems. I want to fix my eyes on him and go for it. While we stand and sing, we invite you to come.